how does extreme weather affect energy at all? It's the largest driver of electricity demand. We're seeing 2x spikes in residential usage. And then again, outages, transmission outages, pipeline outages, solar can be iced over. You can have wind turbines that are icing. Those two combined with gas pipelines frozen is what really hit with winter storm Uri. Weather is the biggest, biggest portion of this. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Welcome back to another Tactical Tuesday. These are practical insights from subject matter experts designed to help you in your professional clean energy career or growing your own business, as it were. Today, we are going to dig into extreme weather events. How do they impact our energy infrastructure? Why should we care? Beyond what's been happening in Texas, if you're paying attention, um, and throughout the Southeast with hurricanes and winter storms. How is the concept of forecasting these weather events integrating into our ability to build reliable, resilient infrastructure? To talk about that is a guy named Sean Kelly. Sean is the CEO and founder of Amperon, and he's been trading global power markets since 2005. He worked for companies that you might recognize like Tenasca, Lehman, EDF, Eon. He has a deep bench of experience, not just in himself, but on his team. And we're going to ask some questions that I know Sean, through his energy trading experience, is going to be able to help us unpack. For the last six years, Amperon has been building technology to give utilities and developers exactly the kind of insight that would help them navigate and trade energy better. If these are the kinds of insights that you've been looking for and you're just now finding Suncast, I hope that you'll listen all the way to the end. And as a result, I hope you'll subscribe to the show because we've got more than 650 episodes like this in our back catalog at mysuncast.com. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. As we dig in today, I want to give a shout out and a, and a hat tip to a mutual friend, and collaborator, Mr. Mike Casey, who recently had Sean on the Scaling Clean podcast. If you haven't heard that episode, we'll link to it here in the show notes because Mike goes into the background of today's guest, Sean, in a way that I think you would benefit from if you aren't unfamiliar completely with Sean and Amperon. Thanks, Mike, for uh, for getting sort of, sort of getting that on tape, as it were. And it reminded me that although I am familiar with Sean and Amperon, uh, I had this gap of knowledge that we're going to share with you all today. And that is exactly how, uh, you know, someone with an energy trading background, building a platform to sort of give signals to the market for where and how they should be thinking about the way the electrons move, uh, might be able to inform us about these extreme weather events. So Sean, with that, uh, I'd love to bring you on stage. Good to see you again. Good to see you as always. Uh, thanks for having me. And, uh, extreme weather is now dinner table conversation, uh, but something I've been looking at, as you mentioned, since 2005, uh, mm -hmm. as my, I guess, energy trading career went from 05 to 16, and then been working on Amperon for the last six plus years. 
so yeah, good to good to be here and excited to uh, share some knowledge with you. Hopefully, that I've uh, gathered over my nineteen year career. Jeez, getting old. Well, you know, um, in those nineteen years, you've done quite a lot, all the way to managing the trading desk at a big company like Eon. And you know, I've heard you say that you were. Uh, trading clean electrons before it was cool and uh, and been in the clean energy space longer than most of our listeners probably. Could you give us a sense of the breadth of experience that you acquired prior to forming Amperon that, and, and how that led to the, the, the product that you guys created that we'll talk a bit about, but we're going to talk about kind of what developers benefit from as a result. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and- the you saw my joke about the clean energy transition i mean i literally had i scheduled it to nasca i started there two weeks after i graduated from texas a&m and there was this one schedule that's super annoying because they're like you have to change it every single hour i'm like why are we changing this every hour and they're like sean it's wind and i was like it's what and they're like it's a wind turbine and a wind turbines back then uh, for everyone who pays attention now, I think there's like a 15 megawatt wind turbine you can get off the coast. They were half a megawatt. Uh, this was owned by Direct Energy uh, at the time. It was called Buffalo Gap. And again, I was like, why am I doing this? Why am I changing? But now you look and there was, I think, 2,300 megawatts uh, of wind power in Texas. And now there's almost 40,000 megawatts. So I've literally caught a 20x move pretty much uh, throughout my career. So that's where it all started. Uh, went to a great shop called Eagle uh, Energy here in Houston, uh, which is where I'm from, where I'm back to now um, with my wife and son. And Eagle became Lehman Brothers and then Lehman didn't work out. Uh, so it was there when everything fell apart in September of 08. And then EDF, Electricidad de France, uh, came into the US and uh, and acquired our company Got to do some fun acquisition of a couple of nukes there, uh, Nine Mile and Guinea in New York, and then go uh, help Eon set up their trade desk in Chicago in 2013. So been a fun career. Uh, moved to New York for a girl, uh, worked out nicely, and uh, just saw tech talent everywhere. And this energy transition, I mean, I'm a very, very big Texan, and a lot of the energy space is in Texas. However, the technology space has not really made it here. And so with that, when I was living in New York, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet really talented data engineer, uh, Abe Stanway at New York Clean Energy Week. We both mm-hmm. volunteered uh, in spring of 2017. And uh, his joke was, I'll build it if you can sell it. And that's what's really um, put all these together. Uh, but lo and behold, um, extreme weather is happening I feel like we literally have a one in a hundred year event about every three months now. Yeah. I mean, you think, uh, also just thinking back to this as I was putting some thoughts together, uh, just before doing this, the extreme weather likes holidays too. Uh, ah. winter storm Uri, uh, I had a really fun before I had a marketing department, uh, post on Valentine's days to do in the dark. So, yeah. uh, if you want to dig through a whole lot of LinkedIn posts, those on February 14th of 2021, before the lights went out at 2 a.m. on February 15th. Uh, I mean, on the recent standpoint, we had Winter Storm Elliot, which I know uh, took out a lot of the Carolinas uh, and just surprised everyone. That was a un, un uh, I guess that was like the new coal, uh, literally for for uh, Christmas of 2022. That's what a lot of people lost their power then. 
And then lastly, um, what we had recently is uh, MLK weekend. And so we had a big, big uh, storm that a lot of people uh, here in Texas were concerned about. But ERCOT did a great job of handling the grid. Renewables did a great job of showing up. Um, because again, they, they learned a lot in, about weatherization from 2021. So three years later, they got another big test. Wasn't quite as cold, uh, but nonetheless, we uh, the wind and solar really, really did its part this time. For those who are perhaps less familiar, um, they're working in, in maybe different, um, different areas of the industry and they're trying to wrap their head around the work that you do. How does extreme weather uh, affect energy at all? Yeah, I mean, great question. Uh, it's the largest. Um, it's the largest driver of electricity demand. Uh, you think about it, and back in the day, you had natural gas heating. So winter uh, really changed, but now you're seeing electric heat pumps everywhere. Electric heat. So we're seeing, I mean, two x spikes in in residential uh, usage because I mean, you got to keep that heat on. Got to keep your got to keep the family warm. Um, that's a big driver of that when it's hot outside. This has always been like this, but air conditioning, right? Air conditioning's always been electric, but you've got to get that electricity going. I mean, down in Houston, we came off of a really, really hot summer of 2023. And so air conditioning usage, extremely high. Uh, and then again, outages, uh, transmission outages. Um, I mean, there can be pipeline outages. There can be solar, like solar can be iced over. I mean, you can have wind turbines that are icing. Uh, again, the, those two combined with gas pipelines frozen is what really hit with winter storm Uri. So, I mean, weather is the biggest, biggest portion of this. My second hire was a PhD meteorologist. Uh, some of y'all probably joined Dr. Mark Shippum, uh, for his, um, winter webinar or a summer webinar and then he does a, a mid checkup so four mm. of those a year he was a second hire at the vc community uh, our money was out of new york it's like your second hire is a what and i was like <laughs> just let me let me see how this goes yeah yeah uh so that's where everything is i mean we work with five weather vendors and we're always looking for new weather vendors as well yeah by weather vendors you mean the data the data the inputs into your weather models yeah, the data is wild. I mean, we use uh, just in North America alone, we use uh, 20,000 plus, I mean, I think coming up on 30,000 weather points updated hourly between 23 and 28 variables. Uh, and as we launch in Europe, same thing. It's wind is wind, solar, solar. So thanks for that. I, I now have a much better understanding of how extreme weather has to do with energy and the grid. But for those unfamiliar with energy trading, Given your deep bench of experience, this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on particularly. How should we think about this flow of electrons with respect to how weather can affect it? And um, and maybe some of the ways that you are helping customers uh, more specifically address it than, with tools that didn't exist before. But how, how do we think about the way electrons flow and how it affects the grid when these weather uh, activities occur? Yeah, I mean... I Great question. Again, this is where, I mean, it all ties into power prices. And so with uh, the power prices, we'll just go to this last instance. Uh, it's pretty fresh on people's mind. There are a lot of articles on it. Uh, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, everyone's written their synopsis of what happened uh, or kind of didn't happen in MLK weekend of 2024. We, on January 3rd, uh, we put out a morning newsletter and Dr. Shipham said, this looks a little sketchy on like the 
like about 11 to 15 days out. It looks like something might be coming. He continued to update that on a daily basis or on a weekday basis. Uh, and then our models continue to see, hey, this is real. This is real. It's coming. It's coming. And so then um, as much as we wanted to prepare for it, you still can't catch it completely. And so on uh, January 14th, which uh, I believe was the Sunday, and then January 15th, which was MLK Day, the weather models didn't see it coming in as hard and as fast as it did. And this was not just across Texas. It's literally, this was the most widespread one I think I've ever seen. It really touched a lot of the United States. Right. And so it came in hard and fast early. And so for the 14th and the 15th, especially in the morning of the 15th, the weather that we use from these four different weather vendors was still off by 10 degrees. So as much, this is why Google is spending so much time and releasing some great open source code. I mean, there's so much improvement still to be made on weather. Mm -hmm. um, there's, I mean, great companies coming out uh, that are companies that have been around for a long time and then people funding new companies like the Climavision or something like that, that just trying to solve these problems. So yeah, it is, um, it, it drives those power prices because when we made that initial call, uh, on January 3rd, prices were trading around $65 uh, for the entire week. And then they traded up as high as $1,000 per megawatt. So for those of you sitting at home getting your bill in kilowatts, that's a dollar, a dollar a kilowatt. Uh, average should be probably, we'll just call it nationwide, it's a pretty widespread, but call it like 20 cents. Um, so this is significantly, and that's including transmission. So probably closer to 10 cents for the supply. Well, one thing that you're teeing in on, keying in on there is how this doesn't just affect the asset owners. It affects uh, real people, real people on the front lines. Uh, you have some great examples or stories just from Winter Storm Uri. You mentioned uh, it happened you know, effectively on Valentine's Day. And you, as I remember, endured the 72 hours along with everyone else in the dark. I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of the knock-on effect, both positive and negative, from a big storm like Yuri and some of the stories that, for you, are emblematic of the changing environment we all find ourselves in. That's uh, definitely a question that I've given a lot of thought to. I would say, I mean, first off with the bat, it was a very unfortunate event. We were six months pregnant at the time, so very impactful uh, on the home front. And then a ton of people lost power, their lives lost and then economic damages to the state of 72 hours of $9,000 prints. Just not helpful. Um, I mean, gas prices were at all-time highs. A lot, a lot of people were losers. A lot of places such as Brazos and Rayburn, uh, both large cooperatives, had to restructure um, due to those losses. And then a lot of, even our customers uh, went out of business who were retail energy providers. So it was a very, very hard time. Uh, I will say, I think that there is silver lining in everything. And with that, we're paying attention. Everybody's paying attention. This became a dinner table conversation. Mm -hmm. This has moved people into the energy transition. This has moved people into clean energy. This has made the people that I get to hire now really, really fun because they are all passionate and they say, you know, I'm tired of working at this massive tech company. I'd prefer to come and do something impactful. So next time when it happens, like it did a few weeks ago, we're prepared. And this also brought the, the IPPs, which is independent power producers. Independent power producers are battery operators. They're also wind. They're also solar. They're, I mean, 
their fossil fuels, their everything, their nuclear, their everything across the board. That's what we call in, in my world IPP. Uh, and so they realized that weatherization was really important. And again, when I was at Eon in Chicago, uh, the temperatures we got down to seven degrees, I think in Chicago, they call that spring. Uh, and so there is a lot of wind there throughout the Midwest, but they were all weatherized to that. They, they had a large, uh, set of wind farms in Indiana. Indiana gets this cold all the time in Texas. That we have a rule. If it gets, if it starts with a three, we're shutting down. If that's <laughs> 39 degrees Fahrenheit. We're just done. Don't expect school to be in. Don't expect anything to yeah. be in. Uber Eats may, may possibly be in, but even that's doubtful. And so I think that's what just raised a lot of alarms for people. Um, and, and made what Nico, what you're doing, what I'm doing, uh, just that much more in the spotlight. Yeah. Yeah. We have to really bring, uh, acute awareness to not just the reality of it, but how to navigate in this new reality. And the landscape for forecasting and trading energy uh, in the 20 years since you started in this industry have changed a lot. Electric vehicles are now uh, a dinner table conversation, to your point. Rooftop solar, distributed generation in many forms, demand response programs. Gosh, there's so much that is offering ancillary services to the grid. I'd love to chat with you a bit about the topic of grid stability, because I think at the core, the big argument in many ways against renewables is that it will create grid instability, that the despite our you know, insistence that renewables are in fact resilience, and especially during extreme weather, as it relates to our ability to manage and forecast those demand patterns, how do you see the market evolving and what do you feel ipps as well as developers need to really be thinking about in that new in this new landscape it used to be off peak and on peak so off peak is 10 p.m to 6 a.m and then on peak is monday through friday 6 a.m to 10 p.m so that doesn't really work that well anymore uh and in terms of renewables i mean great topic that you brought up from the standpoint of it does get a bad rap of Wind, for instance, just kind of does whatever it feels like. Um, I mean, there's different times of day that are traditionally more windy than others. Uh, but I mean, the wind changes, I mean, by the second. Uh, solar is actually pretty helpful. You kind of know around 9 a.m., like, we're going to get going. And then we know that, I mean, daylight savings time makes a massive shift in things just because of when sunlight ends or begins. Uh, so again, something that we can look at. But this is where I think batteries is one of the things that really helps out um, because, again, batteries, the technology is getting better. There's companies like Form Energy out there who are trying to do like a 100-hour battery. But, I mean, in Texas, you're seeing one- and two-hour batteries uh, because of how the ancillary market set up in California. You're seeing four-hour batteries. That's still very, very limited uh, amount compared to what we're traditionally used to of, of plants that can run all day. And so I think that is something that we're going to continue to see better, I guess, better technology improvement on. I'm also a really big proponent uh, of generation that is clean, um, but some people are a little scared of like nuclear. Uh, and so nuclear is definitely, I mean, what happened in Japan a handful of years ago uh, is definitely not ideal. We've had some of those instances here in the United States, but nuclear is zero emission um, generation that is flat and just shows up all the time exactly when you need it. So I'm personally an advocate of that. Uh, and then there's some really interesting stuff on the geothermal front. 
I mean, again, living in Houston, I grew up seeing Shell and Chevron and Exxon as the, the big players. Well, what are those people really good at doing? They're really good at drilling. And what entails drilling? Geothermal. So I'm also pretty bullish on geothermal just because we're taking a skill set that people have been perfecting for a hundred years uh, and then just taking that and just uh, cleaning up a little bit. So yeah, I think I think with renewables, you're definitely going to see this. But as you look at any transition we have throughout history, it's always a little bit rocky at first. Nothing ever just is like you just flip the magic switch and, and we're good to go. Um, and so this is something that, again, I think we've made a lot of strides in my career and I'm definitely bullish on where we're headed. You know, one of the reasons uh, that we, we laugh about in private is that I haven't had you on the show because you're just not really focused on like the solar and battery storage industry until you recently have become so. <laughs> and I appreciate that in the, the deep experience you've had in trading energy, you're very pragmatic as you just discussed technologies that like nuclear, that a lot of folks in the clean energy space avoid. So I wanted to get your thoughts on the relative speed of w- with which we are integrating clean energy of all sorts into our energy grid. We call it the energy transition, transitioning effectively away from fossil fuels. But it doesn't seem to be or feel to me like it's happening fast enough. What are your thoughts on that? We honestly need the government permitting regulatory stuff to just kind of get out of the way. Um, I mean, it is nice having an entrepreneur in the DOE um, for normally doesn't happen that way. Uh, and so I think that that slowly helps, but one person and his team can only do so much. Uh, and so I, I really think a lot of it is just kind of the, the red tape around things uh, that needs to be continued to move out of the way so we can actually get what needs to be done. And I will say that there there is a lot of stuff that is happening pretty quick. Uh, one of the things you mentioned is like when we met and when I started the the company, we were a electricity demand forecasting company. Well, now we're a forecasting company. We do demand, wind, solar, um, carbon insights, and price. And so all across North America, Australia, and now in Europe. And so with that, one of the things that people are asking for more than anything else is literally uh, utility-scale solar forecasting. And so people aren't happy with uh, the results out there. We just started um, dipping our toe into this space. And the other one, too, is municipalities and cooperatives. They have not gotten a lot of space. I would say back to something earlier of people paying attention, munis and co-ops are paying so much attention after what happened with Winter Storm Uri. A lot of them ended up in pretty rough shape, uh, but they are really taking a hold of the energy transition. They're taking a hold of smart meters, and they're really taking a hold of utility-scale solar. Um, so this is something that, again, it's reliable. It doesn't happen 24 hours a day, but it starts happening at roughly the same time in the day, goes away roughly the same time in the day, and you can plan around it. And so this is where I think incentivizing people to charge at the right time is extremely helpful. If you start getting massive fleets of cars to all uh, start charging during the duck curve, well, guess what? Kind of flattens out a little bit, doesn't it? And so just as we see EV penetration increasing, there's a lot of ways we can do this. But going back to the the point I was touching on earlier is on peak and off peak are no more. The middle of the day is sometimes more off peak than off peak is um, just in terms of prices can actually go negative because it's a nice if it's nice out and it's sunny out, then you've got a whole lot of solar. 
it's funny the 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 business models that were that most of the early solar and wind projects were predicated on in terms of the expectations, the cash flows, they were based on sort of the the status quo, but fundamentally renewables changed the status quo, right? You mentioned the ability to leverage distributed energy resources like electric vehicles to flatten the duck curve. What other practical advice from a longtime energy trader would you give folks that are building these asset infrastructure out in the field? I completely agree that that just completely going and doing a full PPA. I mean, the clients that I speak with uh, that back historically, you would go and you would get, you would do a PPA, which again, this is a, a heavy solar audience, but power purchase agreement. And you basically say, Nico Energy, I'm going to supply you with X amount to serve your clients uh, over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And you'd say, great, I'll pay this price. This is what you need to show up with. Well, now a lot of people are taking some of a merchant. So what merchant is, is instead of saying, I'm positive that the price that Nico quoted me over the next 20 years is the price it's going to be um, because I was getting project finance for it to go and build such turbine. Uh, now I want to keep a little bit merchant because there's these crazy events happening and I, I can't necessarily promise that I'm going to deliver what I, I'm telling you during these hard times. And I don't want to cover this contract that I sold for double digits with quadruple digits uh, per megawatt hour. And so that's where I think it's uh, it's been interesting to see how people have looked at that and looked at that long-term forecast and, and taking it merchant so that they're actually going into the day ahead in real time and being able to optimize it more. So that's another business model. I'm obviously a really big fan of that business model because that's who my clients are and that's what I did for a number of years. Um, but that's what we're seeing more and more of. And that's where just having that short-term forecast is extremely important um, as opposed to just a PPA is a kind of a set it and forget it. Um, but in my opinion, you're, you are normally leaving a lot of money on the table. As we wrap, I want to touch on that money on the table um, because there are ways to monetize asset level forecast, something that you and Elliot and others on your team think about quite a bit. What low hanging fruit? Would you point out to folks, uh, you know, for some of our listeners, they may appear to be obvious. And I bet that you find that for others, it's not that obvious at all. I think that asset management and how you look at your risk is something that people are increasingly paying attention to uh, and need to increasingly pay attention to. A lot of people who are, say, building uh, battery algorithms to try and figure out when to actually enter or exit the market. Uh, and by exit, I mean charge. Uh, I think that them using us saying, hey, by the way, ERCOT, for instance, on the peak day that we had just a few weeks ago during that weekend, or during that week uh, on January 16th, ERCOT said there's going to be 86 gigawatts uh, of load. We said there would be 80.4. Demand response, the Texans out there, especially with big commercial industrial, really stepped it up. It came out at 78.1 gigawatts. Uh, our closest competitor was at 81.7 gigawatts. Uh, they wrote a nice press release on it, and we wrote our press release on it. And I mean, just knowing that what they're telling people we need to provide is actually, it ended up being 8,000 megawatts too much. So what, what do you think happened to prices? prices really came down. And so if you were looking at Amperon's forecast versus that, you would have gone in and said, hey, in the day ahead market, this is what I'm willing to deliver. And then 
you would have done very well because you would have gotten about a $2,000 per megawatt price as opposed to a $300 per megawatt price. So again, as I mentioned earlier, people are taking more stuff merchant. If you knew that the day ahead was going to come in at a much higher price than the real time did, uh, which was my thesis the day and two before uh, and, and hit perfectly, made me miss trading a little bit, then that's something the risk management you can really pay attention to. Uh, the other thing too, again, a lot of this really harnesses on battery because battery is focused less on and more on the people than less on what the uh, nature is doing. And so the battery plus storage is something that we're seeing a lot of when if the sun's going to set early or if it's just going to be one of those uh, days and sun's not going to be shining, then you can at least plan for that and understand uh, what when the grid should theoretically pop because the solar that you're expecting isn't going to be there. You know it's not coming, but other people may not know it's not coming. So that's the focus that I think people are paying attention to and should be paying attention to. But overall, I mean, I'm just excited that this is a conversation now. This is something everyone's paying attention to. They used to just be, hey, how's the weather? Is the awkward elevator conversation. And now it's the dinner table conversation. People texting you asking if the power is going to go out getting to talk to clients about it and really let people know that, yeah, it's not a one in a hundred year event. It's like a one in a hundred day event is what it feels like uh, somewhere across the country. So really uh, appreciate the opportunity to highlight this. Fantastic conversation as well. Sean Kelly is the founder and CEO of Amperon, a technology company out of Houston on the forefront of climate volatility, AI, weather forecasting, and maximizing the yield of all these renewable energy assets. Sean, I'm going to link to, in the show notes, the blog post, uh, one of the ones that I uh, found particularly interesting by Patrick on your team, the next of climate volatility and AI. And as well, I think you've got a white paper on the critical importance of advancing forecasting, advanced forecasting for retail providers. I'm sure folks here would want to dig into more about how you guys think about and advise developers to think on these topics. But is there anything else in addition that you would add if folks are inclined to reach out and, and find out more about you guys? Yeah, just knowing that knowing the, there's a lot of people interested in solar. A few years ago on our website, we did a case study with AMO. AMO is a great client of ours, uh, the Australian energy market operator. Uh, as solar enthusiasts, I'm sure you know there's 45% residential solar in Australia, which I don't even, I can't even fathom what that looks like. I unfortunately have not been able to take a vacation, I mean, business trip over there. Uh, and so we put out a white paper about how the wildfires, uh, actually affected, uh, solar installations, um, I think about three or four years ago, but again, very pertinent to your audience. Cool. We'll link to that as well. Attenuation of large scale solar PV production by bushfire smoke in Southeast Australia. I just found it while you were saying it. Kudos to your team for making all these resources easily findable. Um, we'll have to have you back on to talk about the incredible ways that you guys are in fact leveraging ai on the forefront of the nexus of ai and energy and climate for now just want to say thank you sean for sharing from your deep well of of wisdom i'm sure that we will see each other again soon in houston my pleasure well thank you for listening all the way through to this point in the interview i presume that you are hoping i'll give you a little bit more insight I mean, the reality is Sean is such a knowledgeable asset to the industry. Um, I'm grateful for he and the team uh, helping schedule this and making the time. And you know, how, how interesting. They have a chief meteorologist 
on his crew. Also, he didn't mention it, um, but his chief revenue officer was the former chief sustainability officer for Microsoft. So I try to bring folks into your purview that you should be following or listening to or or thinking about or learning from. Uh, So thank you, Sean, for helping us tie the bow on or connect the dots of how these extreme weather events really are impacting our energy grid and what it means for all of us who are either telling the story of or building the assets for this clean energy transition. If you like these kinds of conversations, as I mentioned in the intro, check out the other 606, almost 70 episodes now in our backlog at mysuncast.com or right in whatever podcast app you are listening to. If you do go to mysuncast.com and click on the episode notes page, I think that's what they call it now, you will find this episode and all the resources that we mentioned, including those blog posts and white papers, so that you can dig in deeper if you want to learn more about the critical importance of advanced forecasting for retail electricity providers, or if you're curious to know how PV production uh, in Australia was affected by bushfire smoke, because that just happened in Canada, and... (laughs) affected PV production here in the Northeast. Uh, and lastly, I want to say thank you just to everyone who tunes in each and every week. You continuously seeking more knowledge and education so that you can grow personally and professionally and with your business is why we show up each and every week to help guide you through this energy transition with folks like Sean on the front lines. And I hope that it is adding value. I'd love to know more about how and why and when. You can email me directly, nico at mysuncast.com. You can always leave me a note on LinkedIn where I both check my direct messages more than my email and I check the comments on our uh, frequent LinkedIn posts. And lastly, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't add to the things I think that you would find value in. Our most recent contribution to clean energy storytelling, which is Valence, our LinkedIn newsletter. Super easy to find in all of the ways that we communicate with you, including the description of this podcast episode. So please go over and subscribe. More than 3,000 of you did so in the first two weeks that we launched Valence, where we chat weekly about how to tell a better story. What are the critical elements of that and why it matters in this clean energy transition? You are a core critical element to everything we're doing. So remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.